one question that raises another question or else many questions about identity. Who am I? If I make an answer to that question, then there's a bunch of other questions that come alongside that. What, do, what does me mean? What, is that, what does that even mean? As soon as you give an answer, it's like a hydra. There's another answer. There's another question that comes out of it. And so I honestly, I don't really know exactly how to attack this except for the fact, because identity is abstract. And one of the things you learn in preaching is that if you're an abstract thinker like me, get out of the abstract and get concrete. I still don't know what that means, okay? So I'm, I'm working through this with you. You guys are, you guys are suffering through my homiletical uh, growth here, okay? Abstract, like theology and these big ideas, concrete, something I can actually do something with, something that actually affects my life. I want to get there, and the only way I know to get there is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the most concrete reality in which we can discover identity, that we can figure out this question. So last week we looked to Jesus, and this week we're going to do the same through 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the first nine verses. Who do you say that I am? This is the question that we considered a little bit last week in the Gospels. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what is he doing now? And what he, will, will he do one day? So I'm primarily concerned with, when we're talking about identity, about the nature and the person of Jesus. Okay, so if we, if we get any clarity, let's get clarity on who he is and what he came to do and let that affect us. That's my that's my goal. That's my task. And so let's look to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and get a little bit of an outline of what we might be seeing here this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. I'm going to skim through this text. Notice this. Paul, called by the will of God to be a messenger, an apostle for Christ Jesus. Verse 2, to those who are made holy or sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy ones together with all those who are in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, grace and peace are yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, grace was given you in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, in every way you were enriched in Christ Jesus. Are you guys noticing a little bit of a theme here? How are we enriched? Verse 6, the testimony about Christ was confirmed. That's what we're doing here right now. It's confirmed among us. Verse 7, you wait. You wait for the real revealing of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. When will he be revealed? Verse 8, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is trying to make a point. Do you guys get it? Do you guys get the point? We need to understand Jesus above all. Paul's writing to a church in Corinth that is filled with self-identifying people who are at war with one another. They're fighting for their identity, their very identity. And you guys have been in churches like this. We've all been in churches like this. We're going to dive into their self-identity and that battle but starting next week. That's where we're going to go. We need to, we need to sit here in this introduction with Jesus. Paul, Paul's letter, again... Paul's letter to self-identifying and prideful, divided people, it begins with Jesus over and over again. Paul came to speak about Jesus. 
to those who have been ransomed and purified by Jesus and not to them alone. They are ransomed and purified all together. They made holy all together with a people who are united together in Jesus to confirm what they've heard about Jesus as they wait for the future day of Jesus when Jesus will come again to finish what he started. It's in every verse and it's in every line. It's from top to bottom about Jesus. And so that's where we're going to press in. Blaise Pascal. One of, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite saints, uh, he said it like this, Jesus Christ is the object of all things. He is the object of all things, the center towards which all things tend. Everything is going towards him. Whoever knows him knows the reason for everything, Blaise Pascal says. And without Christ, the world would not go on existing. It wouldn't even continue existing, for it would either have to be destroyed or be a kind of hell. Christ holds all things together, in other words. So, here's the question. What in the world does that mean? What does that mean? What? He is so high above us. What does Jesus' identity have anything to do with you and me and this text All of that, okay? That's what we're going to do. I'm supposed to receive my identity from Christ. You might be saying this this morning. I believe by faith that that's true. And in Christ, and not create it for myself, but what what, what do I do with that? What do I do with that? How uh, How can we know Christ? How can we know him more fully and, and in turn help him under, help us understand ourselves? So last week, the way we got through that was through baptism, looking at the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this week, I want to concentrate on blood. So last week was water. This week is blood. John chapter 1 and verse 29. We heard this this morning. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. This is at his baptism. This is where water and blood come together. And John identifies Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After Jesus came up out of the water, John said it again, Behold the Lamb of God. And this goes throughout the rest of John's Gospel. This theme, the Lamb of God slain for sinners. The Bible begins with God, the Holy King living with His people. And when the serpent comes very early on in the story, he comes to destroy God's people And rather than crush the serpent's head and lay down his life for his bride, Adam, and with him Eve, protect their own skin. They protect their own neck. And from that day, every household on earth, rather than shedding their own blood to redeem someone else, rather than doing that, the ground of every household on earth is covered with the blood of Abel with the blood of unfaithful offspring. We shed someone else's blood instead of laying down our lives for others. This is the story of Scripture. So God washed the bloody earth with a flood. He made a covenant of blood with Noah. Don't shed someone else's blood, Noah. Lay down your life. Life is valuable. There's life in the blood. This is the covenant with Noah. But Noah failed. God made a covenant of blood with Abraham. Don't count on your flesh for salvation. Cut it off. 
literally, cut it off, Abraham. I will give you offspring. I will spare your son Isaac with the blood of a ram. Trust me, blood. Isaac's older son Esau was born blood red, the text says, and he gave up his birthright to Jacob eating red stew. Red stew. Jacob's sons, they hated their youngest brother, Joseph, but instead of shedding Joseph's blood, God used their bloody deception for good. What happened? They covered him with the blood of a goat instead of shedding his own blood, and Joseph was rescued by a bloodthirsty king in Egypt. Then God sent Moses to deal with this bloody king, and rivers of blood flowed in his appeal, and yet the king did not repent. Here are reading from Exodus chapter 12. Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, and cover the door with the blood, and stay inside, stay inside. For the Lord will see the blood on the door, and the Lord will pass over, and he won't strike you. He won't strike you and your household. Observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. Keep this service. When your children say, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he saw the blood. And he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Out of Egypt, Moses led God's people through a blood-red sea. And Moses continued to intercede for the people in the wilderness. He laid down his life over and over again for this obstinate people. He sacrificed countless animals for them on behalf of them, but their hands were still covered with blood. They were still guilty. Old Testament theologian Jay Sklar says this is the question of the story. Here's the question of this story. How can the holy and pure king of the universe dwell in our midst without his holiness melting us in our sin and impurity? This is the question of the blood guilt of humanity. And even as Moses and Aaron and the priests would make sacrifices for sins, the Lord Yahweh declares... I myself, Leviticus 17 and verse 11, I myself have given blood for you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. So even as these priests are making sacrifices on your behalf, I myself have given blood for you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. But no matter how many animals they killed, the people and the priesthood were still sinful and unclean. They repeated it over and over again, but it did not heal what was broken, what was lost at the fall. They dealt with food and drink and various washings, the writer of Hebrews says, regulations for the body and for ritual purity in the holy place, but their lives, here's the, here's the reality, in the holy place, they did all these ritual purity things, outwardly, but their lives were not holy. They were not holy at all. The gifts and sacrifices they offered could not perfect their consciences. This is the language of Hebrews. They, they were broken. They were, they were at turmoil within themselves still. All the rituals didn't do it. 
So the psalmist says in Psalm 40, which we declared here this morning, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. God, you haven't delighted in our rituals, in our sacrifice and offerings, but you have given me an open ear. Give me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offerings you have not required. And then I said, the psalmist says this, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. God never wanted ritual purity alone. He didn't want his people just to jump through hoops. He wanted a holy people. He didn't want pristine worship services and vestments and white altar linens and all these sorts of things. This was not the goal. This was not the purpose of Israel. He wanted a people who stopped shedding innocent blood and who would in turn bleed for others. This is what he wanted from the beginning. Lay down your life. Adam protected his own skin. Cain killed Abel. Noah was a drunken fool. Abraham died. Jacob's household crumbled around him. David was a man of blood and war, and he didn't build the house. Every covenant, every covenant with man was broken by man. But here's the turn, and this is what the writer of Hebrews helps us to do. Jesus, the God-man, kept his word. He is the mediator of a new covenant. His sprinkled blood, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the summary of the story of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of all the fathers. Jesus finished the old covenant of blood in order to establish the second sealed by his blood. The second is sealed by his blood. I myself have given blood for you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. Leviticus 17. Hear the language of Hebrews chapter 10. By that will, by this will of the Father and the Son, by that will, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Alleluia. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us once for all upon the cross. It is no longer guilty sinners presenting a sacrifice on behalf of themselves, but the offended king himself who is presenting the atoning sacrifice for the guilty sinner. This is the beauty of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, and we can receive this for ourselves, to the church of God that is in Beckley, West Virginia, to those who are made holy, who have been made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be holy ones together. You've been made holy in the past, and it's ongoing. He's making you holy in himself. And you are holy ones together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is where the story of blood meets the church in Corinth. So, so what? So what? My favorite question. What is all this, what really, and I, and I know this sounds, not just to you young kids here in the room, this sounds like really old-sounding religious storytelling. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like blood and sacrifice 
and like something that is so far away from us. What is all this religious storytelling supposed to do in us? Other than fulfilling some ancient need for blood or something like that, why did Jesus have to shed his blood on the cross to save anyone? Why is that the story? And on top of that, and not just an intellectual or or theological question, how does Jesus' ransoming us from our sin and, and making us pure, so this ransom purification of Jesus, his atoning sacrifice, how does it connect with identity, his identity and ours in him with my actual life? I, I don't really know how to do that fully. I, I got to be honest with you. I, I've read a lot of reformers this week. I've, I've read even, I re, even read Thomas Aquinas, who I can't even understand for like more than a few sentences. The guy is so brilliant. I've read medieval scholastics, C.S. Lewis, which you've already heard a little bit from, Jay Sklar, a lot of early church fathers. And here's where I always come back to uh, when, I, when I think about this. I go to Blaise Pascal, which I quoted earlier in this sermon. And so uh, I am completely looking to blaze for the rest of this sermon, okay? How do we connect the, the shed blood of Jesus to me and my, my felt needs and my life and the way I, way I perceive myself and what I think about him? How do I connect those two things together? So I'm going to try to summarize all of Blaise Pascal's Ponce's here this morning. <laughs> It'll take about six minutes, so know that you're not getting very much of his ponces this morning, but uh, here's my summary. Heaven, this is where we're starting. Heaven, in heaven, there is unapproachable holiness and goodness and glory because that's where God is. It's unapproachable. There's, There's goodness and glory and holiness and set apartness and every good thing, it's there. That's where he is. And this God, this God of perfect holiness, he feels not only so high above us because he's holy, he feels far from us in our felt experience. And this is what Blaise Pascal is reflecting on. Why? Why do we feel so far from him? Well, down here on earth, Pascal explains, we are simultaneously, we are bearers of his divine image. Okay, so his glory, his holiness, his virtue, everything that is in him, his love, we see it. We see it all around us, don't we? We see it in people who lay down their lives for us. We see the image of God manifest in so many different people and places all around us. But at the same time, we we feel a deep sense of wretchedness. This is what the language of Pascal used. Or this sin that is so easily entangling us all the time. So we, we see and we feel his glory manifest in us even and around us even. But we also at the same time, we feel foolish. We feel shame. All the time we're ashamed because of the incongruity between what God is and who we are. We know our own murderous hearts and we live with this blood guilt. This is what I would call this, this sinfulness, this wretchedness. This incompleteness that we all feel in different ways. Hear this. This is Blaise Pascal's 401st Ponce. We desire truth and find in ourselves nothing but uncertainty. You feel that? You feel that most days? 
We seek happiness and find only wretchedness and death. We are incapable of not desiring truth and happiness and incapable of either certainty or happiness. So we can't stop not wanting it, but we can't ever get to it. This is where we're at. This is where we're at. And yet, man's greatness, Pascal goes on to say, man's greatness, the image of God, the glory that is manifest in mankind all around us, man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man some great principle of greatness and at the same time some great principle of wretchedness. How are these things compatible? Newsflash, they're not. They're not. This is why we are at turmoil within us. We are filled with what Pascal calls amazing contradictions. That's, That's the experience of our life. We're purging this out of us day by day, but it hurts. This is our experience. And in our weakness, we think we can measure God's mercy. There's no way he could love me. There's no way. There's no way he could see all of my amazing contradictions and still love me. But there is. There is a way. The only way. How can the fullness of the glory of the divine life that is forever with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, how can the fullness of this glory be reunited with the wretchedness and rebellion of fallen humanity? Go back to the first of the sermon. Yeah, Jesus. But he takes upon wretchedness for himself that is not his. It's not his. He takes upon himself our wretchedness, all humanity, the sins of all humanity. With priceless blood, he has brought together heaven and earth in himself. This is what the incarnation is doing. It's healing what has been broken, heaven and earth, divinity and humanity. He has come down to raise us up. This is what we celebrate in the season of Epiphany, the revealing of the restoration that is happening in Christ. Divinity and humanity reunited because of his blood. This is the mystery of the Redeemer, Blaise Pascal calls. Hear this from one of Blaise Pascal's longest ponces. This is uh, ponce number 449. Jesus, uniting in himself the two natures, human and divine, saved men from the corruption of sin in order to reconcile them with God in his divine person, in in Christ. This is the language of 1 Corinthians over and over again. Christianity, Blaise Pascal says, teaches men then these two truths alike, that there is a God and that there is a corruption in nature which makes them unworthy to be in his presence. Unworthy. It is of equal importance to men to know each of these points. You have to know both of these, Pascal says. It is equally dangerous for man to know God without knowing his own wretchedness or else as to know his own wretchedness without knowing there's a Redeemer who can cure him. 
Both of those pits, we've got we to stay out of both of them. We have to wrestle with the incongruity. Those who go astray only do so for want of seeing one of these two things. If you get stuck in your wretchedness, it will, it will kill you. If, you. if you don't consider your wretchedness and you think you've arrived, it will kill you. It is then perfectly possible, Pascal says, to know God, but not know our own wretchedness, or our own wretchedness, but not God. But here is the key. This is the key to all of Pascal. But we can know God without our wretchedness. We can know wretchedness without God. But it is impossible to know Christ. It is impossible to know Christ without knowing both God and wretchedness alike. Here it is. Here is what we need revealed to us here this morning, that Christ is our hope. Look at Jesus and be humbled out of a pride that will kill you. Look at Jesus and be healed from a shame and an overwhelming sense of your own wretchedness, and He will restore you to greatness. And only he can hold together our greatness and our wretchedness. Only he can, and he can only do it by his blood, which washes and cleanses and ransoms and forgives and atones. Only Jesus can heal all of the amazing contradictions in us. This is the story of the blood of Jesus. It speaks a better word. It speaks a better word than every other story we can tell. I'm going, to conclude with, I'm going to conclude with St. Irenaeus. Reflecting on this same idea from Blaise Pascal in the 100s. So this is written around 180 AD. Thus, the powerful word and true human being, the Lord, ransomed us by his own blood and gave his life for our life his flesh for our flesh. And he poured out the Spirit of the Father to bring about the union and fellowship of God and humanity. He restores, bringing God down to humanity through the Spirit while raising humanity up to God through his incarnation. And in his coming, surely and truly giving us incorruption through the fellowship which we have with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.